Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Hello, muggles, and welcome back to Books and Nachos, the book review podcast where we are going through all of the Harry Potter series. This is Arnie. And Stuart. And Brock. And we are here to discuss the third Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So, Arnie, you have mentioned that you have uh, read these series before. You have read this book before. Stuart, this is your first time reading the book, if I recall, correct? It's first time reading any of these books. Yes. This is the book that I typically, if I feel like reading a Harry Potter book, I pick up. This is the book that I enjoy reading the most of all of them, even though I enjoy other books in the series. This book, to me, maybe because I understand or feel for the characters more, maybe because I like the themes, but this is my comfort food Harry Potter book. Well, there's also the fact that if the first two books are one-night stands and all the future books are long-term relationships, this one's a fling, right? It's not (laughs) nearly as long as where we're going to get, but a little bit longer than where we've been. So if you just feel like picking up a book and not devoting a month to it, this one's a good one. (laughs) Well, also because the characters start becoming into their own a lot, too, in this book, too. So the turn starts in this series here in this book. So before it becomes way too dark or a little too dark, depending on how you feel about it, and some of the characters go in directions you may not agree with or have opinions on, this book has a lot going for it that is just easy to digest, but at the same time, so much foreshadowing going on that you can see where things could go or where things are going and how she laid little pieces out this early in the series. All right, yeah, let's get into that, because, Brock, you were the one that told me the third one. Actually, you're not the only one, but everyone's like, the third (laughs) one. (laughs) This one's going to blow your mind. I don't know. I read it. It felt identical in structure to the other novels. I feel like note for note, it hits all the same beats as one and two. What's different about this? Oh, come on. I mean, as the non-fan, this feels totally different than the others. How? All right, let me just start with tone. If the first two are grade school, we're in middle school now. For sure. Which is an improvement, you know? You've been going on about how these are children's books. This one adopts a darker tone, not a dark tone. I'm not saying this is Requiem for a Wizard, but it's a darker (laughs) tone, and it's got bigger themes, it's got a better mystery, it's got somebody other than Voldemort as the villain... Yes, it follows the school year structure, and I believe that to be the pattern of all of these books. Now that I mentioned earlier, it might have been it now playing, that it kind of threw me for a loop because I like the pattern of the books. I like that we start with the end of summer and we get the whole going to school routine and you're in the classes, but you're investigating the mystery. You've got a few Quidditch games. You've got some school rivalries. You've got classes with Snape and you've got a new Defense of the Dark Arts teacher. These are the tropes that are going to be repeated again and again, but much like when I've heard John Williams' music conducted by John Williams, And when I've heard John Williams played by the local Sangamon State University band, you could play the same notes, but be totally different in outcome. And here, this is much better orchestrated and much better played. I think she actually felt more comfortable 
here. She's two books in. She's able to take the characters in different directions. They're 13 years old, and it certainly feels that way. Harry is more confident in who he is and talking back and doing things, especially how he handles the Dursleys in the beginning of the book. And Arnie mentioned thematically, there was a lot of heavy themes in the last book, but here, with the Dementors especially, the theme of depression is all over this book and how it affects you. The theme of fear is really profound in this book in how you deal with fear, how fear can consume you, how it can lead you down wrong paths, make the wrong conclusions, and when reality comes in, how you have a whole new set of fears because of what actually is. I think thematically speaking, and character-wise, she really grows here as a writer. Okay. I hear passion. I love that you guys are passionate. I thought it was the same old shit in a new bag. <laughs> like, I literally don't see any growth. I don't see any darker themes. I don't see anything that's more sophisticated or middle school or any of that. It feels like, oh, crap, I got to do another one. Let me do what I did last time. So, Stuart, let me ask you a question. So, the Dementors, right? J.K. Rowling had a big battle of depression when she, you know, had a divorce and she had a single mom and she didn't have a, a job. She moved to Scotland. She started writing the first book, right? So, the Dementors symbolize the hopelessness that people feel when they are in a depressive state, right? And so, if you know that when you read the book or watch the movie, but especially when you read the book, if people who have battled with depression realize or know that aspect, seeing a book personify to an extent, what depression is and how it makes you feel is very powerful for a middle school book, for any book at all. And I think that is one of the strengths, what I'm talking about, of how she makes this book a more mature than the other two. And I've never heard that it was a battle with depression. This is news to me. To me, the Dementors are any villain. I always pictured the ghost of future past from Scrooge based on her discussion of them. Sure. The big black robes, you don't know what's under the face, you know. Death, right? I mean, from Monty Python, the meaning of life when death shows up at the end. Uh, mm -hmm. The boat captain of the river Styx in Clash of the Titans. I'm not saying the Dementors are the end-all be-all of creativity here, mm -hmm. but I do like the fact that we're dealing with villains that are omnipresent from the get-go the stakes are stated somebody has escaped the world's worst prison and they have a goal to murder harry just right out the gate i'm not falling for it are you kidding me we've had two other books where the first one snape's the evil thing and then it's not snape last time harry's the descendant that's going to open the chamber no it's not I knew by, like, page 30, 40, that Sirius Black, I'm like, they're going to make him some father figure. He's coming back to do something nice for Harry. There was never a moment in this book I believed he was a threat. Well, he came back to get revenge, but yes, he eventually does something nice for Harry. If you recall, Stuart, you may not recall that Hagrid borrows the motorcycle in the beginning of the first book from Sirius Black to drop Harry off at the house. And I kind of like that Sirius Black comes back here. I don't know if she planned Sirius Black out that far. Maybe she just made up a name for the first book. I couldn't find information on that. But I do like that she pulled from the history that she already had created. I was really waiting for that because I... Rereading this, I of course know the name Sirius Black, and so when Hagrid said in that first book, Oh, I borrowed me motorcycle from the Sirius Black, I'm like, <laughs> there better be an explanation. I, I know Hagrid's a pirate. But Wait, it's like a, a leprechaun. What, what did you do there? <laughs> But I wanted an explanation of how this guy in Azkaban lent somebody a motorcycle, and they do explain the timeline. 
But seriously, do you think Sirius is black? Like, you really think, oh my god, this is a threatening character. You don't think she's pulling the same old trick she has done for two other novels of saying, scary thing, not scary thing. Well, I think she also disguises it really well with the uh, setting up of he's uh, the godfather. It was just a nice little touch, but... You think it's disguised? I just, I want to make that understood. Yes. You were surprised to find at the end of this that he was actually a good, benevolent figure. Well, first of all, Stuart, I read this book 20 years ago for the first time, so I can't honestly tell you anymore if I was surprised the first time. I was not surprised that the person that he was scared of versus the person he wasn't scared of, his new dark arts teacher, turned out to be dangerous because his name gave it away. If you know anything about werewolves, Lupin is Lupine. Uh, yeah. Lupin? You think he's going to be a werewolf? Yeah. Again, you guys are talking about sophisticated and all that. I'm like, this is... This is kids' book writing. So look, I was able to figure that out because I was in my 20s when I read this. I don't know how many middle schoolers or elementary school kids know the root lupine. So that's fine. Which is what I'm arguing. This is the same level of reading she's had. I find it much more entertaining. I enjoy the mystery she's laying out. I think she puts so many different mysteries layered upon layer upon layer. Hermione ones throughout the thing too. They had the serious black one going on. They have what's Lupin's secret. I like how they have a whole thing about fear throughout the... Everyone's dealing with different levels of fear. The Bogarts represent that. Let's focus on that. I hear that's a big thing for you. I think it's great. To me, that was confusing because what we're told is Harry should fear Voldemort. And then we're told Harry should fear this dog or Sirius or something. And then we're told, but there's these dementia. I'm like, there's too many. Like, there's too many objects of fear. And when he actually has that lesson about his greatest fear coming out of the cabinet, it's not Voldemort. Right. He's always been blithe about Voldemort. He says Voldemort's name. Everybody around him. I'm surprised it's not Voldemort for every single person standing in front of that cabinet, except for Harry. Harry's always been brazen when it comes to Voldemort. And so I agree that having Harry actually fear something, having Harry actually suffer a blow, he has been rushing headlong into danger. You've had all these adults going, Harry, don't. Harry, don't. Harry, don't. And here, Harry is facing something that actually frightens him and that he has to grow and stand up against. The fact that you start dealing with some of the backstory with the parents, the fact that there's parallels here, the fact that we're going to find out that Harry's father and mother had a click very much like Harry's, and it's the Neville character who's going to be the one turning on them. I like a lot of the designs here and the deepening of the wizarding world that goes on here. This is the first time I feel a mythology being built instead of just a world being built with terminology and castles and things. This is the first time I feel like she's thinking about a book four and a book five while she's writing book three. The other two very much felt like they could be standalone books. But what's this book about, then? If you're excited about the world building, I'm focusing on the here and now. What is this about? I hear Brock say, this is a book that's going to help children understand the concept of depression. And fear. In the same way that the last book helped them understand about racial difference, genocide, bigotry. I don't think it's done as well, honestly. Again, and partly because there's too many things to fear here. Like, because they're going between, is Voldemort showing up, is Sirius Black showing up, is this werewolf teacher the really serious Black, is the Dementors, I, I didn't really understand the Dementors, I'll be clear, maybe you guys are taking something from future movies, they didn't really mean a whole lot to me. When I read this book for the first time, the movie was 
18 months off. I had just seen the second movie, read the second book, as I mentioned in the last books and nachos, the question of what happened back at the Dursleys <laughs> is what got me picking up this book. And I read the Dursley stuff, which was very quick. Mm -hmm. And then what got me to keep reading this book was the book itself, was the fact that we started with the outbreak of a prisoner, the fact that we have Harry in trouble. The overall writing of this book felt more mature in its verbiage, in its sentence length, in its paragraph structure. It felt like I wasn't reading Dick and Jane Run to the Hill. Uh, one, I want to make clear, because I'm saying this feels written for children, that's not demeaning in any way. I'm not insulting this as beneath me. I'm just saying it's written for their level. And Harry was in danger last time. There were voices in the wall saying, I'm going to kill you. To me, that was scarier than some prisoner that I knew. Like I said, I just knew he wasn't going to end up being bad. I knew it in my bones because of the way Rowling has played that song again and again. Well, I also think there's an aspect here that you haven't touched on yet is that Harry, for the first time throughout this book, feels that he needs to act out and hurt. So he went after Aunt Marge, not purposely, but blew her up. He wants to kill Sirius Black at some time for revenge for his parents. He has a different mindset now because he's 13 years old and we haven't seen Harry really turn that way before. Like he's actually having feelings and thoughts because he's trying to process all this information that's coming at him. And I love that aspect of the book. I also like the fact that we get a character they hate so much, Snape. Harry finally, even though he still dislikes Snape for the majority of the series going forward, still, of course, he sees that his parents aren't necessarily these innocent, wonderful people you put on pedestals. He learns his parents can be jerky, his dad especially. And I think that's important when you realize that your parents aren't necessarily gods you may think they are. Some kids have that earlier than other kids. This guy never knew his parents and finds out that even though he obviously loves them and has this idea of what they could or what they were being, he feels they were taken away from him by Sirius Black, he discovers that, well, maybe his father isn't an angel, that maybe his dad was a person. And I love that aspect of the book. Okay, let's drill into that. Please. Because you're right. This It's always an element of every book that we're going to learn a little bit more about Harry's parents. And I think dribbling that out, that's the tease that keeps you to reading the books, is like, what happened back in the day? Why did he survive? And how will he use that knowledge to survive again? I found all of that. This book, it is only 100 pages longer, but I it, it took me longer to read. I found like the last 150 pages very difficult. Like I kept having to go back and reread and reread what they were talking about, trying to figure out this backstory. I thought it was really confusing to understand what happened to Harry's in the past and this Petey Pettigrew we've never heard of who's the rat. And all. like, I did not like any of that. Like I felt like chapter 18, chapter 19 were a real slog. The shrieking Shack scene when basically instead of Dumbledore giving all the exposition, <laughs> it's Remus and Sirius and Peter Pettigrew go in this giant backstory about and then Snape comes in with the invisibility cloak and just we get a whole bunch of I always hated you and get a little bit of a backstory for Snape as well. Here's where the extra hundred pages are. Like literally, if you can just cut this down, you know what it's like? If you've ever seen two little kids fight and you're trying to figure out what they're talking about, like he broke my He-Man and he broke this and you ate my ice cream. Like stop talking and tell me what's wrong. I cannot figure out what's going on here. And basically it's that Pete was the betrayer, but you wouldn't know that because it takes like 30 pages to lay that out. 
I'll agree with Stewart here that the Pettigrew bit felt out of left field and not set up. That felt like a bit of a cheat at the end of the book, because we're told from the beginning, Sirius Black, Sirius Black, Sirius Black, and now, all of a sudden, this rat that's been in the books forever, and could apparently turn back to human anytime he wanted and just decided to be the Weasley's beat-upon rat pet? I mean, I understand he's in hiding, but you gotta go to someplace better than the Weasley's. Couldn't you hang out at Lucius Malfoy's or something? I just felt like that was a very convenient turn that wasn't set up at the end. Did I know Sirius Black was going to be a good guy? I had suspicions there was more to it than the official record, but did I know that the rat was going to turn into human? Is that even teased properly? No. Well, no, the Animangus part is not teased 100%, but it's better explained in the book, that's for sure. Animangus sounds like a dirty sex act, I'm just going to say. Throughout the book, we have Crookshanks, who is Hermione's cat, going after the rat constantly, right? You think it's just a cat and mouse thing, right? Why wouldn't you? No, I knew that cat was working for the bad guy. I knew it. The cat isn't working for the bad guy. He's working for Sirius Black. He's actually working for Sirius Black, who is, he's calling the bad guy who is... Right. That's all I'm saying. Is like, I knew Sirius wasn't going to be as bad as they indicated, but I knew he was an agent for how Sirius was getting into the school. In the book, there's a scene that they cut from the movie. Sirius Black is over Ron's bed with a knife. The rat is in bed with Ron, which is also weird, but he's in bed with him and he's going to try to kill the rat in the dorm room and the rat runs away. That's what's going on there. So... They, I think there's plenty of stuff there. Is it blatant? I mean, it's all there. Same with the Time Turner stuff. It's there. They keep laying it out. It's better played in the book than the movie, which we'll talk about on Now Playing, uh, about how they, she does lay it out. If you've read the book a second time, Stuart, you will see how she tries to lay it out. No, I'm not reading this book again. I know you're not. I know you're not. <laughs> but what I would argue is that this is no different than it's Snape, it's Snape, it's Snape, oh, it's Quirrell. Like, I feel like it's the same move. Like, that. suddenly it's this rat at the end. Okay. M. Night Shyamalan has a lot of the same problems, too, with his first three or four movies, right? We all work waiting for that twist, waiting for that twist, so it kind of takes away some of the enjoyment of watching a movie because you're just waiting for that twist, right? So, okay. I hear your point on that it's the same old shit in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. I think she takes the same old stuff and builds upon it and does some wonderful things with it, especially with the switch between Lupin and Black, how Lupin is someone to be feared more than Sirius Black. I kind of like that flip. But I want to talk to you guys about something that's a big part of the book is the time turner. I mentioned a couple of times. Time travel can cause a lot of problems. We've talked about this on Now Playing a heck of a lot of times, how time travel sometimes can be inconsistent with what they want to do. Here in the book... It's a time and space turner. They actually change where they are physically as well. Instead of just, they don't stay in place. So it's not really a time machine. It's a time and space machine. I kind of like the idea that if you can go back in time and change anything, can you do that? Is it worth doing that? Or is taking what you were given and working with what happened a better way to go? And so that's an issue that I thought was a very interesting idea to bring up in this book. In that Hermione's using time travel to study more, a very innocent way to do it, a very innocent reason to use it. But at the end of the book, they have to use it to save Sirius and save Buckbeak, right? And so as a theme of dealing with fear, if you can go back, eventually when you deal with your fears and understand your fears and understand your life, if you could make different choices, would you do that? In the Harry Potter series, already we've already heard that the choices make the wizard, not what happens to you. And the Time Turner brings that back into again. So do you feel the Time Turner aspect is something that is necessary, 
a fun aspect, or do you think it hinders the themes of the book? It gives Hermione something to do. They have to figure out, well, we've got all these characters now. Ron's got a rat that means something, and Hermione's got a time device that can be the deus ex machina. I think time travel's sticky. I think when you introduce it, particularly given the fact that this Harry Potter has this storied past, well, why doesn't he go back and see what Voldemort did to his parents? Like, wh- I, Maybe this is going to be a big part of the future books. No, it's not. But I think it's a cheat. I think uh, this is something you typically want to avoid as a writer. It does feel convenient, and they go with the Bill and Ted rules of time travel. <laughs> of, you know, what you did in the past has always happened. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like they change anything by going to the past. They merely fulfill what had already happened anyway and get out of the room they're in, like you say, with the time and space bit. Mm -hmm. A teleporter could have allowed them to rescue Sirius Black at the end as easily as a time machine. I never really shed a tear for poor little Buckbeak, the Mm -hmm. animal that Draco Malfoy pissed off until it broke his arm. I mean, I never want Draco to win at something, let alone kill an animal, but I also wouldn't travel back in time to save Buckbeak. (laughs) Well, look, they're not saving Buckbeak necessarily. It's kind of a bonus to save Buckbeak. But my point of bringing up the time travel is that in a book that talks about fear and the kids are dealing with life in a different way, right? So there's always that aspect in your mind of, uh, if I could only go back, I would make different choices, right? So I kind of like the idea they bring it into this particular book because it turns out that, yes, you can go back and make different choices, but as I already pointed out, they don't really don't make different, they just, things that already happened anyway. I also kind of like that she takes time travel out of the picture for this world entirely because the way it's set up here is that it's uh, are certain rules. Wizards aren't supposed to do it. Wizards have gone crazy and destroyed things. They make it very clear that time travel is like the worst thing and it's very difficult to do and very few devices are able to do it, but it's not going to be on the table going forward as an, a possibility to deal with any problems. She takes it, uses it here, and we can't use it ever again. It's Superman flying around the Earth backwards to save Lois Lane, though, because Mm -hmm. the fact that she's now introduced it, anything that happens in the future is going to make me wonder why somebody doesn't just go back in time an hour and fix that crap. Yes, but at the same time, it's forbidden and it will cause problems and we're supposed to understand that. I just, my problem is that we've already seen this before. Hagrid in the first one had a dragon that caused problems. In the last one, he had a spider that caused problems. Now he's got a hippogriff that causes problems. (laughs) I just see the repetition. Yeah, there are tropes in series that, Jesus, Jessica Fletcher... Why isn't she arrested? I mean, every time she goes anywhere, someone dies. I mean, it's repetition. It's the trope of the thing. The Incredible Hulk goes from town to town. All of a sudden, every time David Banner goes somewhere, the, the Hulk comes up. Right. I'm not saying that to damn this thing. I'm just saying by the third time, I'm kind of indoctrinated. I'm null to the surprises. What originally felt like, oh, where are we going now feels like, well, yeah. By book three for me, my first time reading the series, the familiar notes were a comforting rhythm. Agreed. And the differences stood out more because of the similarities, and it really helped make this book feel different than the ones before, despite, yes, we still have the Draco Malfoy rivalry that's going to take place on the Quidditch match, and we still have, yeah, Hagrid is 
being a little bit dumb with his animals. He's not as refined. And we, again, have the new dark arts teacher who's going to have a secret. I mean, these things don't bother me that she has chosen a structure that she's then going to modify each time. Again, I will re-emphasize what I just said. It amplifies what's different. It doesn't make me bored with what's there. Which is what? I think the aspects of the way she's able to extend the characters that we already know with the base that's there and show there are different sides. People aren't just two-dimensional. She's able to take character beats with Harry. Lupin isn't just one thing. He's something different. Black isn't just one thing. He's something different. Scrabbers isn't just one thing. He's something different. Why is that different than the first two books? Because the way she... I think especially with Harry, she's able to expand the character more. Ron and Hermione are bickering and fighting too. We don't see that before. Their relationship gets more complicated. Relationships and ideas and personalities, all these things are developed more because she's had three books now to not have to worry about setting things up. Now we can play in the world a little bit more, and I'm really enjoying that. I wish I felt that it was getting more nuanced and more mature. I feel like oftentimes Rowling is like running around, grabbing at things. Again, chapter 18, chapter 19. Knock it off. Tell me what's going on. I can't stand to hear you. I mean, it's not enhancing it. It's more muddled. I'll agree that once we get the reveal that Sirius Black is a little bit crazy, but is there to protect Harry, not there to hurt Harry, that chapter is confusing because you do have all these different things. Oh, and you're a werewolf. And mm. Snape is coming in and has a misunderstanding of everything that's going on. It is a really confusing chapter. The worst thing she's written. I mean, literally infuriating. I had to read it three times. I'll never read this book again, but I read that chapter three times to try and understand what she was talking about. I read it twice. You know what I like about all this stuff with the reveals? You know what I saw? when I read these books is that in high school, these three friends had a guy who was a werewolf and every month he has to go to that shack and, and have a transformation. And these kids in high school, instead of shunning this guy and saying, screw you, you're weird and you're going to dangerous. We don't want you. They accepted him and changed themselves to be with him in the same situation. I think that's amazing. But it's not that weird in a school that has ghosts teaching class. Like I couldn't even follow that. Oh, werewolves are a step too far at Hogwarts. Okay, what I'm saying, Stuart, is that these friends accepted their friends' differences and challenges and were real friends to them. So when Peter Pettigrew does betray James, it's a real betrayal. These guys are tighter than a lot of other people. I had some friends who were, who were different when they were kids, and I stood up for it because other people didn't like them. And these are some of my best friends today. People have stood up for me, and they're some of my best friends today. The people who are there for you in the worst times and the best times. So even though we see shades of James being a jerk to Snape, we also see James here as a good friend, same with Peter Pettigrew, same with Sirius Black, that they bent over backwards to make their friend feel accepted and wanted and worked with him instead of working around him, against him, and shunning him. And I think that's also a wonderful lesson. So that's what I see in all that stuff. Yes, all of that stuff can be confusing, but I love the fact that these kids are good at the core for their friends, loyal and good people. And I think that's a, a credible thing to read in, a, in this book, in this series. And it shows the bond between Harry and Ron and Hermione in comparison, how they're always there for each other. I, I love that. I can see your point there, Brock, but that doesn't negate the fact that it is told in the most clumsy way possible. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I agree. I if I were looking in the crystal ball, I see that there, but is that really what she's doing? The execution is the problem. The metaphors and what I hear you responding to very deeply, and I agree with you, it's lovely that we have a children's book series that is teaching them about adult feelings and trying to put context to what might be dark and scary so that it it feels safe yes and understandable as they develop absolutely all of that is admirable but this book is way too long and labored and obvious well you're gonna have trouble going forward then Stuart, because some of the other stuff in this book too long and labored does come up in a few of the future books but i again i eat it up with a spoon sometimes and certain times i don't because i enjoy the world building because of the layers because i know the characters and i think as a person who's a fan of this series who has read these books multiple times i am rewarded a little bit more than you are in certain scenes in certain aspects because i know what's coming and i can see layers being put in and spoiler alert Stuart, all these things in the structure are going to be repeated in three more books so oh my god what you're kidding no way <laughs> i mean the seventh book does break away from it but to me i guess i can just remember the repetition of being in grade school and having this similarity and what you're saying about how poorly she wrote all of the reveals, because it is coming from three different sides and three different viewpoints all at once, is the same situation as how well she wrote the rest of the book leading up to that and how it just does feel different than the books before because the stakes feel higher. The Dementors feel more omnipresent. There feels less episodic. It doesn't feel like in that first book where it was a series of short stories all strung together that eventually led to a climax. This feels about something. This is the first one that I could say feels like a proper novel. Mm -hmm. I feel like the second one had themes that were better demonstrated, shorter to the point, more poignant. The trouble I'm having, you guys seem to think that I'm having problem because it's formula. No, I'm, the problem I'm having is that because it's formula, it requires you to do something different to up your game. You're saying she does, and I'm not seeing it. I don't know what you're talking about when you're like saying so much more expanded, so much more mature, so much more. I don't see more. I see the same. I see diminished, actually. I see this as a lesser book than the first two. Well, I disagree with that, and I've gone into why already here. So, guys, I want to mention before we end up here is that for this reread of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, I was able to read the illustrated edition. My daughter received that book for a gift for one of her birthdays. We already own the original version. I have the original copy, uh, which actually is the binding is falling apart because it's been read so many times by myself, my wife, and my daughter. This illustrated version has, it's bigger, it's a bigger book, it's not even the size of our hardcover, it's like, I'd say, twice the size of a hardcover, the print is much smaller, has two columns of text, but there's illustrations throughout that uh, have uh, pictures Lupin and pictures Snape and pictures uh, the animals and the different creatures that they talk about in the book. People love these editions because it adds something different and new. Each page in the background has a pattern, or like, it gives a little aspect, sometimes it's hard to find the uh, text in the patterns on the back. I bring this up because people love these editions. I found it a little difficult to read, and I don't know if it really enhanced my reading of this book as much as p other people say, but I do applaud the publishers for going this route because we talk about in the past how when we've seen the movies and we see the characters in our heads as the movie versions, these illustrated copies are more true to what the characters look like as Rowling created them. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a fun aspect. 
I think any pushback you can give to Hollywood saying this is the only, it's like fairy tales. We don't want every time you think of a fairy tale for it to be the Disney animated version. Like, it's nice to have another way of looking at Harry Potter. I think I would enjoy those, actually. Right. And they're up to book five now. I believe book five is coming out in later this year. So if you're interested in these books, you should definitely pick them up. Go to your local library, flip through it, see what I'm talking about before you go purchase it in case you're not into it. Well, that said, the illustrations I saw just at the beginning of the chapters, Daniel Radcliffe is the illustration of Harry Potter. (laughs) I mean, he just leapt off that damn page. So I don't know that I could ever picture anything else. But yeah, seeing other characters in different ways. But I do think we will tear apart this plot a little bit more in now playing. Like, I do have a question of, is it just coincidence that the rat ended up with the family that would end up being Harry Potter's best friend. But (laughs) come on. Well, do you have an answer for that? (laughs) I'm looking forward to having that conversation with you guys on now playing. Do I have an actual answer for you? No, I don't. But I'm looking forward to discussing it with you on now playing. But yes, that's where we will get into the movie version. Now, I will say I've not seen all the movies, but I remember seeing this movie and feeling the abridgment made the movie lesser than the book. And that was the first time I really felt that in the way they had to leave stuff out made the book far superior to the movie we're going to discuss. You didn't feel that way about book two? I didn't like book two. Oh, right. Okay. I'm looking forward to talking about that very much in Now Playing. If you're interested in hearing that conversation, you become a donor over at nowplayingpodcast.com. You can hear those conversations. We're doing this entire series up to the new Fantastic Beasts movie, which is coming out in April of this year. You can find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So I look forward to our week three Harry Potter the movie conversation. Brock Stewart, this has been illuminating. Ah, I see what you did there. (laughs) Until next time, remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.